0: It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I am so buzzed off at this iPhone, I can't even begin to tell you, which means I'm really ticked off at Apple. Used to be, I don't know, a couple years ago, if you didn't want uh, emails or phone calls to interrupt you, you press one button do not disturb. Okay. And if you did want to get calls and you weren't in the middle of doing 12 other things, off do not disturb. And I noticed that everybody was silencing notifications. I guess people found it annoying. You could still hear a a slight ping or buzz when something came through. Then, I don't know, it was a new iOS system or some kind of update. And do not disturb disappeared from the home screen or from the menu that you got by swiping your finger diagonally, which is also a pain. Instead, it said focus. Now, how's anybody supposed to know what focus means? But you would go to focus, and then you would see do not disturb, and you could turn it off. So it was three steps when it used to be one step, but it was annoying but tolerable. Well, yesterday, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to do the podcast, and I can't have, like, phone calls if they're on the podcast. So I go to focus, and do not disturb. And suddenly, it pushes me to all these choices. Work, driving, personal I, I don't want any more choices. I just want do not blanking disturb. I don't want all these subcategories. You could ask me, do you want these subcategories? But it doesn't work that way. All right. And some breaking news here, fresh out of the oven, watching TV while uh, doing some work. And Hunter Biden makes a surprise appearance at his own House contempt hearing sitting in the front row of the audience with his lawyers. Um, it was wild because a Democrat, a Democratic member of the committee, which is chaired by Jim Comer, Jared Moskowitz of Florida, was going on and on about you know the basic argument that Hunter Biden wants to testify in public and the committee is moving to hold him in contempt because he won't give a private uh, deposition. And so everyone's just sort of shocked that the president's son walks in. Jared Moskowitz says, you know what, I'll vote for this. I'll vote for contempt. And then he starts holding up subpoenas issued to various Republican members of Congress, including Jim Jordan, including Kevin McCarthy, during the January 6th committee proceedings. And he says, when you... Agreed, He says to his Republican colleagues, when you agree to pursue all of this, I'll vote for Hunter Biden's contempt of Congress as well. Then, when he's done and Marjorie Taylor Greene takes the mic, Hunter Biden and his lawyers stand up, walk out of the room, Marjorie says, you know, you must be afraid of, of conservative women, of tough conservative women. I just need to, I was about to ask you a few questions. Meanwhile, though, Hunter and his lead lawyer, Abby Lowell, go out into the corridor. There's a press mob out there, a whole bunch of cameras. Every cable news network switches the feed from inside the committee room to the hall where Abby Lowell, proceeds to denounce what the Republican controlled panel is doing. And then they walk out of the House building and Hunter Biden gets into a car. I think they'd go, they'd go do some other business on Capitol Hill. Now, this was a stunt, an absolute pure 100% stunt. And it was not as effective. It was not as effective as the last time when he stood outside the Capitol, because in that instance, Hunter Biden spoke. You could hear the man speak. You could hear his arguments. It was certainly, you know, uh, done as a photo op, but at least we heard from him. In this instance, other than I I could see he was mumbling a couple of words as he was walking out, trailed by uh, an absolute pack of camera operators and and reporters, he didn't speak. We didn't hear from him. He showed up almost as a silent protest, like the days from the silent movies. But this is, of course, going to reignite the whole Hunter versus the Republicans narrative. And I don't think it's going to be well received at the Biden White House. The president's team doesn't like when Hunter is so high profile in the news because it brings everything up again. We had all stopped talking about Hunter Biden, at least temporarily. But now he's again a top story. Tonight's the big night. I'm sure you're all breathlessly awaiting. Maybe not breathlessly. But we have program and counter program. On CNN, candidate debate down to two. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. On Fox, a town hall in Iowa with the candidate who has blown off all the debates Donald Trump. Now, obviously, this is very much in keeping with Trump's goal of separating himself from the pack and making news on his own and on his own terms. I am sure Brett Barr and Martha McCallum will do a terrific job, and they will include questions from Iowa voters, which, after all, is the point of town halls. And I'll report back to you on how the ratings go on that. You know, sometimes somebody does something in the media business that's wrong and they don't get ousted immediately. Wait a few months and then quietly get rid of the person. Here's the latest example. NBC reporter Miguel Almaguer announced on Instagram that he is no longer with the network. Now, this guy's worked for NBC for 18 years, uh, won the Edward R. Murrow Award, Appeared frequently on nightly news and today. But late 2022, so this is more than a year ago, he was suspended for horrible reporting on that hammer attack on Paul Pelosi, Nancy's husband. It raised questions about what happened between Pelosi and his assailant. It fueled, you know, these right-wing conspiracy theories about that they know each other and so forth. And then NBC deleted it with an editor's note saying this piece should not have aired because it did not meet NBC News reporting standards. And so now, and even though the exchange of letters is, oh, you've had a great career here, it's, you know, as if this didn't happen, it's obviously related. South Korea has banned dog meat which used to be a favorite of the South Korean diet. I would say this is about, I don't know, two centuries too late. I mean, killing dogs. But apparently there's new concern for animal welfare. So in theory, at least, South Koreans will give this up and the dogs will live. And I say three chairs for the dogs. Okay, I want to get right to this. Number one. Lloyd Austin, what an absolute political fiasco this has turned into. Democrats as well as Republicans furious with the defense secretary over this whole hospitalization fog, fog of war, you might even say, and medical cover-up. That is what it was. And yesterday as I flipped on to the Pentagon news briefing, we learned for the first time, and apparently the White House had been notified about this news just a little before, that the Pentagon chief has prostate cancer. Now, first I have to say, I'm sympathetic to the fact that this is terrible news. I hope he beats it. I hope he has a speedy recovery. He's still in the hospital. Nobody knows how long he'll be there, but he's out of the ICU. As a political matter, it's an outrage. It it reveals in even more stark terms that this was deception. I mean, the whole business about, I guess he was admitted to the hospital on December 22nd, telling no one for what was described as a minor procedure. Well, it wasn't a minor procedure. He was taken by ambulance, and he got a test to confirm that he had prostate cancer, so obviously or the extent of it, so obviously there was great concern. Well, you know, that can kill you. And then he gets taken back to the hospital on New Year's Day with complications from the earlier test. And for five days, the media didn't know about it, the public didn't know about it. For several of those days, the White House didn't know about it, the President of the United States didn't know about it. Now, you hear all this, well, Lloyd Austin, he's uh, reclusive, he's intensely private, I don't care. He is in the nuclear chain of command. Given what's going on in the Middle East, what if... US ships were attacked. Wouldn't the president want to consult with his Pentagon chief? Wouldn't the secretary of state want to consult with the Pentagon chief? Nobody knew where he was. And there was this absolute BS um, explanation about, well, his chief of staff was ill. So there was nobody to tell the White House. You know, I will wager a lot of money on the fact that the Secretary of Defense has a pretty big staff and somebody else could have made the phone call, had they known. So, there's now a statement saying the infection has cleared, the infection he got from the test. His prognosis is said to be excellent, but when you're watching this news conference with very aggressive questioning by the reporters, it was very tense, and... The press secretary um, didn't really try to defend it. He said something about, you know, Secretary Austin has taken responsibility. No, he hasn't. He put out a statement saying, "Yeah, I'm the guy who made the decisions. That's all." White House is furious, uh, and rightly so. And you got a lot of folks now calling for his resignation. So, this came up then at the White House briefing where spokesman John Kirby said the White House had only learned that the very day about the diagnosis oh here's here 's a line from a New York Times story which is is very sort of clinical and bloodless with not really capturing the incredible drama. And furor swirling around this top cabinet member. Secrecy has prompted criticism, especially from lawmakers who were not told. Until Friday, Mr. Biden said he retains his faith in Mr. Austin. You know, could could you the writing be any more flat? It's fiercely private and has been guarded about his medical issues. Yeah. Walter Reed doctor said he had over the last year shown changes in the antigens that are used to identify prostate cancer. Then he underwent, underwent the December 22nd test. It's called a prostatectomy to treat and cure prostate cancer. So it wasn't just diagnostic, making this even a bigger outrage. Then he had a urinary tract infection that sent him back to the hospital on January 1st, the doctors found collections of abdominal fluid that they said were impairing the function of his small intestines and drained them. This doesn't call for a solely medical report. You want to do a separate sidebar on prostate cancer? Be my guest. It's just... It's one thing, if he was politically clueless enough to not notify anybody... The guy responsible, was direct uh, supervision of our armed forces had not revealed that he went in there for a minor procedure. That was the next stage of the cover-up. But he had not revealed that he'd gone in there for prostate cancer. And, oh, (laughs) the White House put out a statement saying... It's asking all agencies to review their current procedures for delegating authority when a member of the cabinet is immobilized or can't work or whatever it is. Jeff Zients, the chief of staff, who you rarely hear about, reminded cabinet agencies to notify the White House in the event of a delegation of authority or potential delegation. Okay, isn't this just... A, a desperate face-saving maneuver, isn't this? Locking the barn after the horse has already gone out. Maybe these procedures should have been in place before, but maybe nobody thought there would be a situation like this. And I just got to add one thing that not isn't really being talked about. Beyond the cover-up, beyond the outrage, beyond the political stupidity here, this whole style of Lloyd Austin's is really hurting his ability to do his job. Let's say them in no hospitalization. How much do you see or hear about Lloyd Austin? I'm sure he was a great four-star general. Maybe he does a good job of managing the Pentagon. But rarely if ever holds a news conference. Takes only a handful of journalists on foreign trips with him, when many more want to go. He's just not speaking out publicly. And even there are very there are fewer Pentagon press briefings than there are at other high-profile agencies. So, you know, the Secretary of Defense also has to be an advocate. He has to weigh in on sensitive military matters especially when you have a war going on between Israel and Hamas when you have a war going on between Russia and Ukraine it's not like all is calm on the western front ah politico has one blind quote here saying the new um about the new guidance one us official for another department said it's disclose or if you don't be prepared to get your head kicked in yeah That's the kind of language we need. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. Just as um, no Harvard freshman could get away with the plagiarism that Claudine Gay engaged in, no private first class could go AWOL and expect to remain in the military. Good point. Pentagon says it couldn't notify other VIPs like, you know, the President of the United States because Austin's chief of staff was also ill. Are we really supposed to believe that no one else depending on has access to a phone or email? It was notable that the Austin absence resulted in a joint statement from the Republican chairman and Democratic-ranking member of House Armed Services, asking for more information. But the White House is owed complete trust and confidence in Secretary Austin. In fairness... Once someone has presided over the pullout of Afghanistan without getting fired, says Lowry, it's hard to cashier him for anything short of losing some other country in humiliating fashion. So National Review wants Lloyd Austin to be canned. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number two. And I've got to lead off with this. I just saw the new cover of The New Yorker. Obviously, liberal magazine, not a fan of Donald Trump. On the cover is a caricature of Trump wearing a bunch of medals and walking in the famous Nazi goose step. So they did everything but draw a Hitler mustache on him. There he is. Picture worth a thousand words, right? Or maybe a million words. Trump's a Nazi. There he is, one foot high in the air, just like uh, Hitler supporters and military people did it. Now, yesterday, and I have a column on this today, if you are so inclined, on Fox, Donald Trump came here to Washington and sat in on a appellate hearing about his claim of presidential immunity. Three-judge panel, two of the judges appointed by Joe Biden, one by George H.W. Bush. And they were, you know, a lot of headlines said, skeptical, openly skeptical. Well, yeah, I mean, there's audio, so you can listen to it. They asked much tougher questions of Trump's lawyer than they did of the lawyer for special counsel Jack Smith then adjourned, and we'll see when they come out with the ruling. But most observers now expecting the ruling to go against the former president. Now, a couple of points we made here on the legal aspect. Um, this went off the rails. So the Bush appointee, Judge Henderson, said that until Trump was indicted, courts never had to consider criminal liability of a president or a former president. Now, Trump's lawyer, his name is Sauer, said that Trump was acting in his role as president and upholding his official duty to preserve the integrity of the election when he tried to overturn the loss to President Biden. Judge Henderson, I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care of the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law. And the former president's lawyer made this bizarro argument that the only way that his client would not have immunity is if he was first impeached and convicted. And then he could be charged. And that gave rise to talk of these various scenarios like, well, what if a president ordered the military to murder someone, but then resigned before impeachment? So here it is. They got into this whole hypothetical uh, served up by one of the Biden judges saying, could a president be criminally charged for ordering SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. And that's when the answer came about, yeah, well, first if he was impeached and convicted. The special counsel's lawyer said, it was terrifying to think that a president could use the military to murder a rival and then escape criminal liability by simply resigning. So, it did not go well. Um, Last night, Trump was into his uh, all-caps phase. Without immunity, it would be very hard for a president to enjoy his or her golden years of retirement. They would be under siege by radical, out-of-control prosecutors, much like I am, but without the retirement. And there was another one. Let me just check here real quick. Dialing up Truth Social. Here we go. Oh, by the way, condolences to the Trump family on the passing of Melania's mother. Um, here we go. If they take away my immunity, they will take away Crooked Joe's immunity. Without immunity, it would be very hard for a president to properly function. Only one exclamation point on that. So that brings us to Trump's lawyer, Alina Habba, who went on Fox last night and had to say this. The real facts are so easy to win that we have to argue now the slippery slope argument of if he kills someone, he will, be held, will he be held accountable? He didn't kill anyone. He didn't cause an insurrection. He didn't get charged for it. But they're using hypotheticals to frighten America. <sighs> Saying he didn't kill anyone, I mean, it's just a snapshot in a very crazy era. But the main point I made in my column is, while Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are, are trudging around Iowa, getting uh, events canceled because of the heavy snow there, doing the town halls with Fox, CNN, Trump dominated the coverage yesterday. All morning long, it was wall-to-wall. Then they broke for a couple of news stories. And by the afternoon, even after this contentious and emotional Lloyd Austin press conference, press conference about Lloyd Austin, I should say, they went back to Trump. All the legal experts came on. This is ridiculous. Trump's going to lose. Obviously, it's going to end up in the hands of the Supreme Court. Liberal New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg. She says, after Joe Biden's speech last Friday on the January 6th, Insurrection? Mitt Romney said, as a Biden campaign theme, I think the threat to democracy pitch is a bust. Biden needs fresh material, a new attack, rather than kicking a dead political horse. If he is right, says Goldberg, it's as much an indictment of America, including the American media, as of the Biden campaign. It would mean that Donald Trump has already broken us, so frying America's circuits that we can no longer process the authoritarian peril right in front of us. Whether or not it was savvy, his words, Biden's words, had the virtue of being true. Michelle writes, Trump's assault on democracy isn't just part of his past. It's what he's promising for the future. He's being straightforward. He's not hiding the ball. This could become a self-fulfilling fear. And... She says, the resistance era warning against, quote, normalizing Trump might now seem hokey, but it's still apt. The alternative is to let Trump redefine our sense of what is shocking and aberrant in American politics. This is like, don't move on. This guy is a threat and he's dangerous and he's out of control. Uh Trump talking about you know dictator for a day and so forth, and making what is perceived by the media to be authoritarian comments in some cases they are authoritarian type comments. The memories of so many other trumpian outrages have disappeared. all this forgetting is a result of trump's singular talent, which is to transgress at such speed and scale that the human mind. Can't keep up. Well, other Trump supporters would say he has other talents beside that. But that is a singular talent of his, just as, you know, using indictments. You just think about this. We've all moved on precedent. Yeah, four indictments, it helped him. Went up in the polls. A former president of the United States being indicted four different times. Now, are some indictments stronger than others? Are some indictments perhaps I'm thinking about the New York one, more politically motivated than others, certainly up for debate. All right, let's uh, look at the campaign trail itself. Story three, New Hampshire has become the most critical state for Nikki Haley, for Chris Christie, and the small, increasingly desperate contingent of the Republican Party that wants to cast aside Trump, says the Times. Only state where polling shows Nikki Haley within striking distance of the former president. By the way, it's hard to poll this particular state because it's not clear who's going to show up because Democrats and independents can sign up for a day to say they're Republicans and vote in that primary. But you have two polls showing a single-digit lead for Trump over the former South Carolina governor, most recent one has a trailing by 7. But then you have this USA Today Boston Globe poll that has Trump up by 20 in New Hampshire. So who knows? He's ahead. The margin is unclear. Not since 1976 has a Republican contender in an open competitive primary race won Iowa and gone on to win New Hampshire as well. So Haley's uh, campaign has poured resources into New Hampshire. She's got the endorsement of uh, Governor Chris Sununu there. She's got the endorsement of the uh, Koch family, the group Americans for Prosperity Action. She started to criticize Trump more, saying um, a few days ago, chaos follows him. Chaos follows him, and we can't be a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos because we Won't survive it. You don't fix Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. So there are intensifying calls, I seem to say this every other day, for Chris Christie to drop out of the race after Iowa because he's at 12% in a number of polls in New Hampshire. Haley is the second choice for most of those voters. And if Christie were to do that, and he's given no indication that he would, that might boost Haley to where she really could score an upset victory over Trump, although it's no, uh, hardly a guarantee. Meanwhile, the Trump camp believes that landslide victories in both states would essentially wrap up the nomination. And that's true. If Trump easily wins both Iowa and New Hampshire, because the next contest is South Carolina, where he leads the home state governor, uh, I think this race is over. Doesn't mean there can't be surprises as we're looking at it now, but we're getting closer and closer to next Monday's caucuses. Politico, piece by Jonathan Martin. Nikki Haley's Tuesday rally outside Des Moines was a fittingly pedestrian event in this desultory exercise of a primary. She delivered a 15-minute stump speech with the precise same words and intonations of her every public appearance, took no questions from voters, posed for pictures with them, and then conducted a Fox News interview while ignoring her traveling press corps, who stood without cover in the wind and snow. Ah, now we get to it. The press corps is pissed off because they're getting snowed on and she's not, why are they following her? She's never going to take questions. It was the cautious performance of a front runner, not that of a candidate lagging by double digits with less than a week to go. The um, most memorable feature of Haley's otherwise forgettable gathering was not what she said, but the nature of her audience. How it explains why Trump is poised to win overwhelmingly in Iowa on Monday, but will face the same general election challenge in 2024 as he did in 2020. I struggled, says Martin, to find a single attendee in a suburban strip mall tavern who was not a college graduate. The day before, I couldn't find a Haley admirer who showed up to see her in Sioux City, who was not a college graduate. The GOP's traditional, professional class base is eager to move on from somebody they find embarrassing and appalling, but the party's beating heart, beating heart, is now Trump-loving, working-class voters. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, a Hollywood reporter, has, I think, the closest look at the Los Angeles Times dumping its executive editor, Kevin Merida. He's only had the job for about two and a half years. He's been around the business a long time. He's worked for ESPN. He uh, spent years at the Washington Post, which is where I got to know him. Very likable guy, talented journalist. He was managing editor at the Post. And yet, a lot of headlines said that he resigned. Yeah, he resigned like Claudine Gay resigned. He met with the owner, the Asian-American wealthy businessman, Patrick Shun Xiong, who took over the paper when he bought it. Kind of a trend of billionaires buying papers. Jeff Bezos at the Washington Post, obviously another example. And suddenly, Meredith's last day is Friday. Well, that says he was dumped. Now he put out a statement saying I made the decision in consultation with Patrick after considerable soul searching about my career at this stage. Yeah, I'm sure he did consult with Patrick, and Patrick said, You're gone. Meanwhile, Washington Times reports, among others, that Elon Musk out of the blue suspended several prominent left leaning journalists and commentators from X. No explanation. It named some of the uh, folks, Intercept journalist Ken Klippenstein, uh, a guy named Alan McLeod, podcast host Rob Rousseau, Texas Observer reporter Stephen Monticelli. Nobody was given advance notice. They are all outspoken critics of Musk. Another less fleeing user ousted was Zy Squirrel, Z-E-I underscore Squirrel, prominent critic of U.S. foreign policy, especially as it concerns Israel. And even Glenn Greenwald, who often defends Elon Musk, says this was a highly popular and polarizing account. Focus was on heavily criticizing U.S. foreign policy. Recent focus has been on criticizing Israel. And billionaire activist Bill Ackman just got banned with no explanation. This is Orwellian and alarming, said leftist commentator Nathan Robinson. Free speech does not mean free speech for those I agree with. Uh, I've since seen reports that these people have been reinstated, but that's the problem. If they were, they weren't. Why did it get kicked off? Why were they reinstated? Why is there no communication about this? It just makes Twitter look, and Musk look more erratic. All right. Number five is from the Wall Street Journal. You know, I take the papers home and here you can hear, and I would have missed this one. It's on the front page. It's about a very personal topic. I'll read you the top of it. Before going to sleep in a hotel room he shared with his brother, Matthew Johnson slipped his wool socks over his feet. He did what? My brother po- uh, saw me putting on socks and he was like, that's crazy. You're a crazy person. This is a college student. Um, a growing understanding of the importance of sleep for health and lifespan has made slumber hacks and gadgets all the buzz including the increasingly common advice to sleep with socks. But an undercover inquiry, get it, by the Wall Street Journal, finds that socks in bed is dividing couples and the public square. Opponents physically recoil at the notion and say people who snooze in socks can't be trusted. Here's a retail worker from Florida who said, that's just psychopathic behavior right there. Wearing socks to bed. Now, I guess I got to come clean. I'm in the socks camp. I've almost always worn socks to bed because it keeps you warm and it's kind of comforting. And in my view, it helps you sleep. I don't care if other people don't want to use socks. I don't care if other people want to sleep naked. There's nothing about that in here. Um... But why attack people of my ilk as psychopathic? I mean, it's like a mental illness. Come on. All right, let me turn to the jump page. Because I'm about to convince you that I have the right idea. Okay. So, um, here's another guy who says, uh, oh, I was an earlier guy, a college student. There's something primal about it. It triggers that response in your brain like, I'm a caveman sleeping in a cave right now. I don't feel that way. Okay, but now you have science weighing in on my side. A study published in the Journal of uh, Physiological Anthropology, I'm a regular reader of that, found that young men fell asleep seven and a half minutes faster, slept 32 minutes longer, and woke up seven and a half times less often than those not wearing socks. Also, researchers say, socks help lower your core temperature. Chilly feet can raise the temperature by sending more blood and heat to core areas, according to the Cleveland Clinic, which says, so what does adding in a fluffy pair of socks do? Those cuddly duds warm your feet, relaxing and widening blood vessels that constricted while cold. This improves blood circulation in your overall body and helps release more heat through your skin. <laughs> and then there's a doctor quoted, clinical psychologist, uh, self-described sleep matchmaker, who would recommend that the partner who feels colder at night wear the socks to bed. Oh, here's somebody on Reddit saying, I sleep with socks when I'm too drunk <laughs> to take them off. And honestly, waking up with socks on is worse than the hangover. Ouch. And then there's like people who sleep with one sock or one sock falls off. All right. I think you've heard enough of the intrepid reporting by the Wall Street Journal. You can all now go debate this, particularly uh, with your significant other, if you have one, whether this is a perfectly common sense, backed by science measure to help you fall asleep and sleep longer, or whether or not the people who do that are bleeping crazy now you see you never know when you get on this podcast i scour the media universe to find this stuff for you i always appreciate your spending time with this podcast and i will see you all tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. meter listen ad free on fox news podcast and via apple Podcasts, and prime members can listen to this show ad free on amazon music